title of the sermon this morning is Living Sacrifices. And as Pastor Scott just read, I wanted you to get the context. That's why we read the whole chapter. I figured it would be okay since it's only 21 verses as opposed to some of the other chapters that we've read through in Romans, which are way longer than that. So let's delve into Romans chapter 12. We see the Apostle Paul here shifting gears and going into some practical teaching about how Christians should think and conduct themselves in daily life. There's nothing in this chapter that does not apply to us. I want to make that clear. There's nothing in this chapter that doesn't apply to everyone here this morning. We are to heed every word of it. In this chapter, Paul tells us that we are to offer our bodies as authentic or genuine worship to God. We are obviously not to offer animals as sacrifices under the law, but instead we are to offer our very own selves. Paul says this in verse 1, for risk of being redundant, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in the Greek, the word brothers does not just mean men. It includes women and siblings. This is a greeting that is used ten times in Romans with the same connotation in one way or another. It depicts, once again, Paul's kinship and our kinship with other believers in mind. Other believers in mind of like mind. We are all children of one father, one family, one body of Christ. Unfortunately, many times we don't act like it. Uh, some of us, and when I say us, I don't necessarily mean people in this church, but people in all churches at this time in history. Unfortunately, many times we don't act like that. We, uh, some of us have a tendency, I should say, to come together in a building like this and nestle into our own little cocoon apart from communication with our siblings in Christ. We don't reach out to others, nor do we care to. Instead, at the end of the service, we make a beeline for the exit sign. And in our minds, we fulfilled our obligation of showing up here on Sunday and putting our time in with the Lord and checking off that box, punching out on the clock. It's like going to a family reunion 
or a family function and not speaking to your siblings or cousins the entire time that you're there. And I don't have to tell you that it shouldn't be this way, but many times it is. The body of Christ, as you know, is communal by its very nature. And there's something off with our Christianity, with our Christian walk, if we are willfully neglecting to associate with other members of the body of Christ. We should be interested, folks, in what's going on in one another's lives. How are we to fulfill the biblical mandate or obey the biblical mandates, plural, concerning one another if we don't spend any quality time together? How are we going to help and serve one another? How are we going to bear one another's burdens if we make no effort to speak to each other, let alone get to know one another? And there's nothing new about what I'm telling you. Being in fellowship with one another is not only scriptural, as we will see in a moment, but it also has an inarguable historical precedent. For example, in the Didache, which you've heard me quote before, which is also called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and which scholars say dates could date as far back as 70 AD, the Didache was circulated and was read throughout the churches at the time. And I'm talking 1st through 3rd century. Before they finalized the canon, there were certain letters that were sent around that weren't necessarily deemed as scripture, okay? But letters of instruction. And this is one of those letters of instruction that were circulating at the time. The author of this um, teaching of the Twelve Apostles says this, quote, Gather together frequently seeking the things that benefit your souls. Gather together frequently, seeking the things that benefit your souls. And one of the letters of St. Ignatius, believed to have been written between the years 107 and 117 AD, St. Ignatius says this, quote, Therefore make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks and glory to God. For when you meet together frequently, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his destructiveness is nullified by the unanimity of your faith. And there are many other writings from these early centuries of the Christian church that admonish us as the body of Christ to gather together with each other frequently. This chapter which is before us this morning, Romans chapter 12, is largely about Christian practice, the way we live our lives in church, the way we live our lives amongst one another, the body of Christ, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is a given here. We must 
have that in mind when we interpret Romans 12. And I am hitting this foundational aspect of our Christianity hard this morning because I see huge red flags in the church today regarding these things. And yes, I see them among believers associated with this local body of Christ. Some of it can be, can be blamed on, on certain things. Some of it can be blamed, uh, for example, on people becoming too comfortable with applications like Zoom. Zoom is a great tool for Christians who cannot be in church because they have a compromised immune system or they have compromised health concerns, okay? It's a good tool for senior citizens who may be mature in age, and as such, it may not be prudent for them to venture out or expose themselves to a mass of people. And this we understand. And this we are thankful for applications like Zoom. But I'm not talking about those people. I'm referring to healthy, able-bodied people, people who have no reason whatsoever to continue attending church remotely online. I am talking about people who tell me that they don't want to come to church because they don't want to be exposed to COVID, but yet I see these same people at the mall, at the grocery store, on West Brewston, in restaurants. Um, I mean, seriously, I do. And it seems like I see them everywhere, but church. Frankly, many people have become lazy and would much rather watch church uh, on a screen in their pajamas than make an effort to enter the building and take advantage of that which can only be had by face-to-face fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And small churches like this are not the only ones who are affected by this. I talk to pastors of very large churches, and they are experiencing the same phenomenon People are no longer coming to church. It's a real problem. But instead, people are forsaking the biblical command and the historical practice. That's why I read you those letters of coming together under the same roof with other believers. And we all know, or at least we should know, Hebrews chapter 10 23 through 25, where the author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit, habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near, the second coming, drawing near. The meaning of these verses are plain. 
We are meant to. No, actually, we are commanded to come together, to meet together, to encourage one another face-to-face if possible, to build each other up, to carry one another's burdens. But yet, I hear every excuse in the book as to why people can't make it to church. The fact of the matter is, people have made a conscious decision to put attending church way down here on their list of things to do when it should be the very first thing on their list. In certain countries, in Africa and in South America, I talk to missionaries. In certain countries, these missionaries will tell you that people will walk 10 to 12 to 15 miles to church. Some of them in their bare feet because they don't have enough money to purchase shoes. Yet we can't jump in a car and drive five minutes to a building to worship and fellowship together as like-minded Christians. Christianity was not designed to be a solo endeavor. It's foreign to genuine Christianity. Christianity, as I said a moment ago, was designed to be a communal endeavor. You cannot build relationships with like-minded believers if you only see those believers once a month. Relationships need to be cultivated over time. They need to be invested in over time. Otherwise, you cannot benefit from those relationships. And the scriptures are clear. God wants you to benefit from relationships with other Christians. And may I add, God wants your children to benefit from relationships with other Christian kids their age in church not on Zoom. You are doing a great disservice. We are doing a great disservice to our children by neglecting to bring them to church. And yet when these kids become teenagers and go wayward with drugs and sexual promiscuity, these same people come to me and they ask me, where did I go wrong? And sometimes I feel like saying, do you have an hour? If I only had a dollar for every time I heard that. You can't do verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 on a solo flight. The Apostle Paul does not use singular words here. He uses words in their plural Form, bodies, living sacrifices. Paul says in verse 4 that we are one body made up of many members, many members, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. That is the response. Response to what, Mike?
It's the response to the mercies of God in our lives. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God has shown us the undeserved mercies that can only be found in Christ. And we thank Him by staying home. Now, the mercies of God that have just been introduced in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to point out, have been depicted all throughout the book of Romans thus far. Uh, Romans 1.18 through Romans 11.36. We've been hearing about the mercies of God from the Apostle Paul's pen. The same mercies that took you and me, who were once instruments of sin, instruments of the devil, and made us instruments of God in holy sacrifice to him. A living sacrifice, Paul says. Some of us need to retrain our thinking in regard to who we are in Christ. And we need to meditate on that. Ruminate on the fact that you are a living sacrifice. We need to understand first that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ if we are true believers. We have access to him by those mercies. We have access to him by that gift of faith that he has given us into this grace in which we stand. And that alone should cause us to rejoice in hope. Why? The answer is over in Romans 5, but I'm not going to go there. You have to trust me on that. Through the mercies of God, in and through Christ our Lord, we have been justified by faith, and as such, we stand in his grace, which means we have eternal life. And eternal life with God through Jesus Christ is something that we should meditate on so that we are rejoicing in it. And it's not just that. Because of the mercies of God that Paul speaks of in Romans 12, 1, we can be, we can be holy living sacrifices acceptable to God because as members of the body of Christ, we are no longer presenting ourselves as sinful instruments, as I said, of unrighteousness, but instead we are presenting ourselves to God as those that have been brought from death to life, past tense. And as such, we are instruments for righteousness for sin no longer has dominion over us because we are no longer under the law, but under grace. Does that sound familiar? It should, straight out of Romans 6, 12 through 14. In fact, Peter says that we are to live as priests in 1 Peter 2, 5. What does that mean? 
Well, Peter says that we are living stones chosen and precious in the sight of God. We are living stones who have been built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, each and every one of us, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's no need for a Roman Catholic priest to be the mediator between you and God because we have a great high priest, Christ, who is the mediator, and we are all kings and priests in Christ through grace. Peter goes on to say in the same chapter that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which says that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you do receive mercy, the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1. Does that sound familiar? Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. I think I beat that to death in the past three sermons. So as a priest under the old covenant was always about the business of continually presenting sacrifices, we are to continually present ourselves as sacrifices, as offerings, holy offerings to God, for God and his purposes. That is our spiritual worship. That is the holy living sacrifice in our text of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Now let's move on to verse 2. Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Yikes. Let's just think about that and let it digest for a minute. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. That's verse 2. We could write an entire series of books on just Romans 12, 2. I'll try to keep it to a minimum of one or two volumes. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Folks, a faithful relationship with God changes your relationship to the world. A faithful relationship relationship with God changes your relationship to the world. If your relationship with God as a born-again Christian has not drastically changed your relationship with the world, then you need to re-examine your salvation. Those who are truly born again 
truly saved by God's grace alone, will by default not stand for or pursue the sinful things that the world deems as pleasurable and valuable. I see Christians today who behave just like the world. They talk like the world, they walk like the world, and they pursue the same pleasures of the world. And they do so so ardently that they either bankrupt themselves or go into massive amounts of debt just so they can keep up with the Joneses and be like the rest of the world. They rationalize continually, telling themselves that they deserve it. They need it. Oh, if only I could get my hands on that new $30,000 toy, I'd be happy. I'll never ask God for another thing again, they say. If I could just get this or get that not even realizing that all along they're breaking our Lord's commandment not to covet stuff and not to covet their neighbor's stuff. And when the offering plate comes around at church, they cry foul. They're the first ones to cry foul, quickly citing that they got to watch their money because of this or because of that. They're completely and utterly conformed to the world, yet they call themselves Christians. It's the complete opposite of what Paul tells us to do in our text. Scripture says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. First John 2 15 through 17. So tell me, Christian, does your flesh and your eyes desire the things of the world? Do you take pride in your possessions, saying to everyone by the way you live your life, hey, look at me. I've arrived. I'm successful. I can buy whatever I want. Whatever my heart desires is mine for the taking. I've got the greatest of everything. Vehicles, house, entertainment system, summer home, the finest food. It's nothing for me to drop 200 bucks on dinner for the wife and I on a night out on the town. Look at my neighborhood that I live in. Isn't it great? Look at all the manicured lawns. Check out my boat. It's the fastest boat on the lake. I hope those aren't the things that people in this church take pride in. I really do. And I believe that people in this church are free from that, at least from what I can see. 
No one here is like this. I thank God for that. Maybe you don't have any of those things. But you sure would like to. Some Christians sure would like to. And they neglect their wife and their kids because they work 80 hours a week in an attempt to get those things because they think that those things will make them happy. Silly Christian tricks are for kids. Jesus said, do not labor for the food that perishes. He wasn't talking about potato salad. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. John 6, 27. Don't forget about the seed, folks, that fell amongst the thorns. These people, seed that fell amongst the thorns, are the ones that have heard the gospel, but as they go along, they are choked by what? The anxieties and riches and pleasures of life. And as such, they fail to produce mature fruit. Not my words. These are the words of Christ. Don't shoot the messenger. Luke 8, 14. When John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is the very foundation of the gospel, the crowds that were baptized by him asked him what they should do. What did he say? He said, go produce fruits as evidence of your repentance. And he said to them, whoever has two cloaks should share with the person that has none. And whoever has food should do likewise. Luke 3, 8 and 11. And in Luke 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's, here's the most important part. that Nobody reads this part. And the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they sneered at him. They snickered at him. And he said to them, you justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. So I want you to think of all the things in this world that are highly esteemed among men. Money, pleasure, position, status, Stuff. Everything, Jesus said, that is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16, 13 through 15. Jesus is very consistent right before this in Luke chapter 15, verse 33. Jesus said to his disciples, 
These are his disciples. Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. I'm quoting these verses in context. I double, tripled, and quadruple checked. Does this mean you can't have nice things? No. It means you can't pursue and have nice things at the expense of not pursuing God. You've got to be willing. This is what I believe Jesus meant when he says renounce all your possessions. He who hates father and mother. For my sake, you got to be willing to give it all up, folks. Your mindset, your attitude, your reality as a Christian needs to be one that knows that if God calls you to the mission field or if he calls you to downtown Pittsburgh to a home mission field or if he calls you to this ministry or that ministry and it means that you can no longer pursue A, B, C, or D, or if it means you must sell this or that to make room for, that you're willing to do it. You're willing to give it up. That's what it means. You're willing to renounce everything for Christ, to follow Christ wherever it is that he takes you. I hope you're beginning to see the meaning of our text Do not be conformed to the world. Verse 4. If you are a slave to money, possessions, and the fruit, or I'm sorry, the pursuit of position or status, you can't be a bondservant of Christ. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. What was a bondservant? A bondservant is someone who is told by their master that they can leave. They're no longer obligated to stay, but they choose to stay anyway because they love their master that much. That's a bondservant. Paul calls himself a bondservant all the time. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Life is short, folks. If you don't believe me, read the obituaries. You'll see all kinds of obituaries on a daily basis of 20-year-olds, 32-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 48-year-olds that have died in the prime of life. You're not guaranteed your very next breath. And neither am I. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, term of conclusion, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yikes! Can't get much clearer than that. Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul said to Timothy, Demas, love this world. The Greek there is 
Demas was enamored, smitten, love-struck, and charmed by the world. Paul says he loved this world, and he deserted me and left and went to Thessalonica, 2 Timothy 4.10. Here's where we need to be. We need to be where Paul is in Galatians 6.14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The very fact that you believe in that cross means that the world has been crucified to you and you've been crucified to the world. You can't have both. You can't have the cross and the world. Both. I would challenge you to show me in Scripture where it says you can. Do you want to make sure that you are not conformed to this world as Paul commands us in our text? Then be crucified to the world by boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Renounce, as Paul says to Titus, Titus 2, 12 through 15, Renounce, there's that word again. Jesus said that with his disciples in their possessions. Now Paul's telling it to Titus. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead live self-controlled and upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for stuff. No, zealous for good works. Then Paul says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that you once walked, once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and by the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. You once walked that way. Antithetically, you no longer walk that way if you are indeed a Christian. Now we walk in what? Newness of life, Paul says. We are to abide in Christ. The word abide means to stay and remain. We are to stay and remain in Christ. And our Lord's beloved disciple John teaches that you cannot walk in newness of life unless you walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2.6, or better yet, you will walk in newness of life if you walk as Jesus walked, is a better way to put it. You must be conformed to Christ's image, Romans 8.29. 
You must walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse you from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. It's a tall order, church. It's a very tall order. Jesus didn't say broad is the road that leads to eternal life. He said, enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. This is Christ talking here, not me. The way is hard that leads to eternal life and few find it. That's the introduction to 12, 1 and 2. If you're out there on the internet, wherever, it's time to stop playing Christian and start being Christians. Let's pray.